All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the It's Telehealth podcast. I am incredibly excited to welcome my guest today, a super amazing individual, Swagata Babbitt. Now, Swagata is an executive coach and facilitator with 30 years plus of experience in the mental health and well-being space. Her work is focused on unlocking the potential of individuals and leadership teams so that they can build on their strengths, understand where they may be stuck, and identify clear steps to build leadership skills and confidence. She has worked with leading mental health and well-being organizations in Australia, including Headspace National Youth Health Foundation and Origin, the National Center for Excellence of Mental Health, peak bodies such as Mental Health Australia, and has provided consultation to state and federal governments across her career. Swagata is an accredited coach with the Institute of Executive Coaching and Leadership and an accredited practitioner in Human Synergistic Lifestyle Inventory Tool. Please welcome to the show today, Swagata Babbitt. Swagata, where are you calling from today? Do you want to let everybody know? Uh, I'm currently uh, sitting in an office in Melbourne in Australia, in Victoria, Australia. Um, my background is as a clinical therapist, I've worked, but I've worked in mental health uh, for my entire career, so that's over 30 years now. Uh, the work that I, I've kind of started off working for 10 years clinically and I worked predominantly with young people with mental health issues, with complex um, mental health issues, their families and carers, uh, and then moved into working at Origin, which is the National Centre of Excellence for Youth Mental Health. And I worked there for about 12 years managing their training and service development and communications kind of arm of the organisation. Mm -hmm. And then uh, from that, I kind of moved into working in more kind of broad service development roles all around mental health and then into more workforce development, organisational development roles. So um, my the kind of focus that I've always had has been on people getting the best possible service that they can for mental health issues. I've got personal experience of um, mental health issues and uh, family members who also have had mental health issues across their life. So um, I've been kind of driven from a personal and professional perspective around wanting to make sure that people get a really good experience of getting treatment and services when they need it. Uh, and unfortunately, even now, 30 years on, the research is still showing that there's a real gap between when people first start experiencing mental health issues and then get the right treatment for what they need and not just the right treatment but for the length of time that they need it and the ongoing consistent support. So I'm still really driven by that. I guess one of my big um, kind of the thing, one of my big drivers is really to see how organisations and workplaces can support people. So rather than looking at their pointy end when people are actually unwell and needing lots of support, it's actually that more public health preventative approach of looking at how systems can be set up from the get-go to be, you know, supporting people to be as healthy and well as they can be and, and then providing support when people people are still going to have experiences of mental health issues. That's just part of life. And so that they can get the, the right support for that. I think that that's an incredibly important topic to kind of stop on here. You know, one thing that you talked about there was making sure that people have the ability to reach out 
and be supportive by systems and infrastructure when they are not on the pointy end was what you just said. You know, some of the things that I see today in the mental health issues that so many people deal with is we only get help when we are severely impacted or our loved ones are severely impacted. What are some of the ways in which you're helping organizations kind of make sure that infrastructure is in place? So when you, like you said, people are identifying that they need help with their mental health, how do they start some of those programs or what are some of the systems that are kind of out there for us to get support? Yeah, look, that's a really uh, complex uh, question. And I think one of the things that is quite challenging is that organisations are often, often kind of having to hold that balance between getting the outputs and the productivity and the outcomes that they're being funded for or that their shareholders are wanting them to um, achieve mm-hmm. and being able to look after the people that are doing the work for them and that sit in their organisations. I think one of the really key elements around um, that is people, leaders being really aware of and allowing time and space to consider what might particularly work for their individual workplace. I mean, there's some really um, key areas around ensuring that job design is adequately set up to allow for people to stay well, mentally healthy, um, ensuring that uh, people have got the connections, the supports from their team, from their manager, that they um, have good working relationships around them. Uh, I've, I've just finished doing a piece of work in the um, culturally and linguistically diverse stigma and discrimination space, and I think there's a particular requirement for leaders to be very mindful and aware of the significant issues that people from diverse backgrounds, uh, not just culturally diverse backgrounds from other diversities, might face and trying to have as an inclusive uh, work culture as possible. So there are a range of things. Um, One of the things that I like to do when I work with leaders and organisations is to take a very individual perspective. So there's always um, each leader is different in terms of their own personal experiences, in terms of what they're bringing to the role and to the workplace. And so um, often the work that I do is actually with leadership groups or individual leaders around how they actually look after themselves and look after their leadership team and uh, how they can model that to the other, the workforce that they're they're actually supporting and leading. So the sort of messages that they're giving by their own behaviour. And I guess an example, like just a simple example of that is um, working with uh, an amazing leader, very clever, just lovely um, style about her, but who was really well known for working all hours, weekends, uh, picking up work that perhaps could be delegated to other staff members. And even though what um, they were saying was that we want you to log off when at the end of the day when your shift's over and we want you to practice self-care, what they were actually seeing from their own leader was someone who wasn't doing that. And so there was a lot of work uh, in that um, coaching and consulting space around how was that managed uh some more self-awareness around what that actually meant for staff and how that actually influenced the culture. So I think we know that if 
it doesn't matter what's kind of said on the piece of paper or in the emails, if we can see around us people working extraordinary long hours and their jobs being designed in a way that is just not um, going to be sustainable for people in terms of their mental health, that that's the, the message that people are going to get in organisations. There's like an underlying culture there. And that's kind of what I heard yeah. you say is that culture aspect is been on display since the pandemic, especially so many mm-hmm. organizations are having to adjust the way in which they lead by example, not just lead the organization, because I just finished a book that was called um, by Dan Kennedy, the marketer. And he talks about, you know, often leaders are taking home more work and doing things after hours more so than even their employees. And so mm-hmm. when the secondhand, I guess, effect of your employees seeing you do that, do they feel comfortable and do they feel safe enough to be able to disconnect themselves from the work to create Mm -hmm. that work-life balance? And that's a super big challenge, even for myself. I find myself as a leader of my team wanting to work all hours of the day. And you have to kind of find that balance of optimization, right? Do I work this many hours? Do I take the time off? And can I be more refreshed and be more effective when I'm not burning the candle at both ends? Absolutely. So there's, I mean, there's two things in that for me. One is around how do you maintain your own balance and look after yourself so that you are, you know, optimal in terms of your own health, but also in terms of the work that you're doing. But then there's um, the other kind of tricky thing for me, sneaky thing for me is that there are some really good hacks you can use. So, you know, one of the gifts that I think the pandemic has given us is Uh, And particularly for, you know, single moms, for people that might have caring responsibilities, for people that, you know, are naturally people who work better late at night rather than first thing in the morning. Uh, One of the gifts is that you can actually be a bit more flexible about the way that you work. Uh, A hack is that you can actually set up all your emails to, you can write them and put all the work in and set them up so that they don't actually send until it's in work hours so that you're saving your employees from kind of seeing one come through, get pinged at 9.30 at night. Yeah. Um, so there's a, so there's things like that that you can do. I think um, one of the things that I've loved about what has happened, uh, there's not many, but one of the things I've loved about what's happened in the last few years with COVID is that I think it's opened up the thinking um and even some of the kind of real, in inverted commas, dinosaurs of organisations that were like, you need to be here at work for us to see that you're performing, mm-hmm. um, have had to change that approach. And there's just this real sense of recruitment happening that used to only be, I guess, Canberra-based, now saying you can work. Canberra is kind of where the, go- the government's based here in Australia. So okay. um, you can work from anywhere um national organizations recruiting much more broadly people who may not otherwise have been able to uh to work the hours being able to do that now and work you know in the evenings after the kids are in bed or or whatever else um so i think that has offered some great flexibility but by the same token i think um people need to be even more mindful of their boundaries around time and availability than they perhaps had to be when they were in at the office. Yeah, because I mean, one of the biggest struggles that I saw many of my personal friends and other business leaders that I collaborate with was their ability to kind of turn it off at nighttime. Because Mm -hmm. now we're in these environments 
that are not separate from our homes and not mm-hmm. are separate from the places where we sleep and eat, but now everything seems to be a work zone. And so yes. did you find some leaders who found themselves having trouble making that transition to help their teams kind of flick that switch off? Or what were some of the things you were seeing as we started making the transition into our homes? Yeah, look, um, so thinking back, one of the first things was um, the uh, one of the organisations I was working with around uh, mapping workforce capability requirements, the board then as we're suddenly transitioning to working from home, said, can we just flip what we've asked you to do and help us actually manage that transition um, and plan for it? And it was not something that they had previously even thought about. It wasn't part of the the workplace arrangement. Uh, What I think became really clear in the early days was just a lot of thinking, and I absolutely have to take my hat off. I've never been so amazed uh, at how incredibly committed the leadership staff that I worked with were really committed to the health and well-being of their employees of trying to manage the transition as well as possible. Sometimes I think uh, therefore taking on more on themselves than you know than they were able to comfortably manage without the impact on their own mental health and well-being. But um, one of the things that oh, there was a really strong focus on was once people are actually working from home, Firstly, just all of the health and safety issues. So are they set up in a safe environment, Uh, you know, not just ergonomically safe, but what's actually happening in the home environment Um, and being really mindful of that. But the second thing was around how teams that had always been together and had that kind of uh, interaction just that happens when you're going and getting a cup of tea or having a quick coffee together, how they could... um, in some ways, artificially build that social connectedness back in when everyone was dialing in from their own lounge rooms or bedrooms. So there was a lot of thinking around how to pull people together again, not just in terms of work meetings, but how to bring a social element into that. And uh, it was interesting kind of tracking. So maybe the first six to 12 months, there was a lot of that happening. And then there was this incredible sense of zoom fatigue and people just saying we just you know we want to see other people but we're just exhausted constantly on the screen having Mm -hmm. meetings and so having to rethink again you know what's the benefit of bringing people together um, with the aim of kind of maintaining that social connection versus just allowing people the opportunity to have a break from the screen and but some of the really fantastic things that some of the organisations I was working with did was um, change their meetings around so that they were, you know, they were having uh, trivia meetings and kind of bingo and some fun stuff and dress-ups where people kind of all came dressed up. Um, uh, what became really apparent was also that shift, again, from your work is your work and we don't need to see your family and kids in the background too. I mean, I remember running a training session and having both my kids coming in and sticking their heads in in the middle and waving and everyone stopping to say hello. And, uh, you know, I think that there was a level of kind of more openness and I guess realism that people don't exist outside of a whole setup of their own family and, you know, that that's something that we need to accommodate in this post-pandemic world. So 
I'm not sure if I've answered what you were saying, but uh, it really occurred to me that that's one of the big things that people's social connections and where they sit socially became um, more accepted as a result of. Yeah, these computers honestly kind of gave us a window into everybody's lives, mm. right? I mean, there was a, a realization like you articulated so well that we are so much more than just showing up for work, punching in and then punching out. Everybody mm. has a home life. Everybody has a family life. And it's very interesting that you kind of talk about the socialization aspect of still bringing a team together is incredibly important because mm -hmm. if we don't have those small micro interactions to build those relationships, it's very difficult to foster true congeniality in the team who can come together to accomplish yeah. great tasks. And so yeah, that's absolutely. very interesting. It's very interesting that that was kind of one of the targeted areas, of course, recognizing that, but hearing, you know, somebody like you who works with leadership, that being at the top of the list to keep that team dynamic moving um, makes Absolutely. so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that was quite tricky was recruitment and onboarding. So there were um, people who the entire onboarding process was virtual. They never met any of their team or their organization face to face. And um I actually had a really interesting interaction with someone who I had been uh, supporting through exec coaching who had lived experience of mental health issues. It's another area that I really love working in. Um, and just recently we caught up for a coffee face-to-face -face and we're kind of chatting and then went, oh, my God, this is weird. This is the first time we've actually met each other in real life. And so we'd had developed this whole coaching a relationship over a period of two years where we hadn't actually seen each other in real life and at some point she's extraordinarily tall and I'm very short and we we're just giggling going oh we wouldn't we just didn't work that out on the on the screen, on the screen. so those kind of yeah that was funny I was going to ask you were they taller or shorter than you expected <laughs> because very tall <laughs> normally when I meet people for the first time that I've interacted with them for so much time on screen and I, they find out I'm six foot six they're like you are so much taller than you look in that little window oh yeah and see so, I would not have picked that <laughs> yeah see that's an interesting <laughs> dynamic so you said something there that I kind of want to use as a transition for us you know you are doing executive coaching and you're working with high level leadership and you're talking about mental health struggles from that space. That's something that I feel like a lot of people who are employees of organizations maybe didn't understand so well until the conversation started to be more broad, that leaders in situations where they're being in charge of overseeing organizations, making sure their teams are still staying together, although they may have resources, are still struggling with their mental health through these times of transition. What were some of the things that you were seeing from a leadership perspective when, you know, individuals were coming for your services or what type of topics were you guys talking about? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess people don't 